All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Barbell Nerds Podcast. My name is Sean, joined by my co-host, Will Rattel. Today, we are proud to welcome Dan Foley of Virginia High Performance. Dan, thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us today. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, man. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. Uh, for those of you that don't know Dan, I'm going to let him introduce himself. The uh, fascia king is what I've referred mm -hmm. to him as. Uh, but Dan, take it away. Tell us uh, Tell us how you got to Virginia High Performance. Tell us what you uh, thrive in when it comes to training. Anything you want to throw at the listeners? Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. Um, so I'm going into my fifth year now at BHP. And uh, basically what led me there was uh, finishing up my uh, bachelor's and my master's at Old Dominion. And I had a mentor there who, uh, uh, Phil Sabatini, actually, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people should or might know um who's in the olympic weightlifting realm and you know i wasn't really satisfied with work or, or where i was going or what my degree was getting me and so he kind of pushed me in the direction to vhp i just kind of showed up and kept <laughs> kept bugging him until they you know were willing to give me a, a job offer and uh you know it's been a great five years since then so we work predominantly with a uh military or tactical population and the majority of of our athletes are representative of the uh special forces and special ops communities and, uh, you know, the reason I, I, I even mentioned that is to just kind of give some context for not only the, um, the training style that I have or the, the modalities that I use, but also just to kind of provide some context for the severity of injuries that we have to work through. But we've got a, it's a small staff, but we've got, we've got a great staff. Uh, Tim Kelly, who's really my right hand man for everything. Um, guys, an absolute wizard, and then uh, Hannah Day and, and Julie Nunn as well are, are some of our other coaches. So it's a it's a cool little operation. I, I really love my work. That's awesome. And uh, for those of you that don't follow Virginia High Performance, their content is unreal. I follow Tim Kelly and Hannah Day as well, and they he's not joking when he says they all work well together because that is a a how do I put this an abundance of information going out there and they're, they're real educators there as well as coaches. So uh, go check them out. Make sure you guys do. Uh, but onto the main topic of today, uh, basically why we wanted Dan to come on to the podcast, the fascia King, Dan, we, uh, we know you put out a lot of content when it comes to fascia. So I want your definition, like what if someone walked up to you and said, Hey, what's fascia? Tell us a little bit about that. Tell us how it, uh, how you involve it in your training. For sure. So the biology of fascia is, is still kind of being uncovered as we speak. Um, what was once viewed as just kind of this messy tissue that just filled up vacant space and was literally cut out and just kind of pitched away for cadaver studies and, and during surgeries and whatnot. We're, we're starting to understand now that it has uh, really profound ramifications for performance and movement and function. So what we're talking about here is one uh, interwoven connective sheath or tissue that is predominantly made up of collagen and water. And so from head to toe, all tissues, cells, muscles, nerve fibers, vessels, organs, everything is enveloped in this tissue that we know is fascia. The important thing that, that I think that, uh, you know, we should understand it at the fundamental level is that there's different densifications or different tensionings of fascia throughout the body. So, you know, for instance, there's, there's fascial tissue that covers your liver and your vital organs, 
that doesn't really have much of an elastic component. It's more fibrous and it's kind of intact to provide stability for the, for the organ. Whereas we look at something like the fascia that's enveloping your quads and your hamstrings, this is gonna be much more elastic and it's gonna have much more reflexive base properties. So with fascia, we're talking about something that is understudied, not fully, not fully known or understood yet, and we're still trying to figure out exactly how it's intersected between performance and rehab. So for us, um, you know, kind of tying this back to what I was speaking with, uh, you know, who we're working with at, at BHP, we, we have had so many cases that have such complex injury or just complex situations to them that we've been forced to look at things from different perspectives. And early on in this, uh, you know, what it really led me to quickly was this, this fascia development or, or enlightening, really. Um, and it just helped me to put a lot more context to, you know, how people are uh, rehabbing from injury and how they're accommodating movement, both while injured and then post-injury. And, you know, what we can do to stress the system when we can't load them with a 90% with a back squat or we can't bench press a guy because he's had two slap tears in both shoulders, you have to get crafty with things. And so when you start looking at the fascial system and, and its involvement in movement, function, re, uh, not rehab, but uh, you know, restoration, you start to see that this is a tissue that can and needs to be stressed. Yeah, so how do you stress it if you have someone who, yeah, like, like you said, can't, uh bench press because of some shoulder injury or can't put a bar on their back. How do you stress the fascia if you can't really load it uh, very effectively? So two part answer there. The first thing is, and, and I'm always uh, sure to make this distinction. The first thing is, is that it's a biological tissue. So I'm, I'm you know, kind of fearful that this is going to quickly turn into like another trend or buzz word, whatever. The, the fascial system is as much of a, of a biological system as the muscular, nervous, or any other ones. So we can stress human tissues, and then which tissues are being amplified or focused is really how, you know, training becomes what it is. So, for instance, if we, again, use the back squat reference, and we have a 90% back squat, we're predominantly stressing A, the bones, the orthopedic system, B, muscles and nervous system, and then C, I would say the fascial system. So all are being worked. It's just a matter of which is being emphasized. So what we do in lieu of this heavy back squat is maybe just a, a super heavy sled push toe combo, right? Because we're okay in a, in a horizontal plane. But if we're moving in a horizontal plane, we're not predominantly stressing the bones. We can't. Physics don't line up. So again, you know, you take somebody who has ACL histories or arthritic knees or, you know, a, a blown out ankle. I'd love to get everybody under, you know, heavy back squats. It just doesn't apply to everybody. So this, you know, this route here is shown us that we can, we can not only improve muscular and functional strength through alternative routes, but we also get an added benefit of emphasizing the fascial system along doing so. Would you consider, and this is kind of just my, my viewpoint of the fascist system and my very limited understanding of it, just from one or two books that I've read, is it, would you consider it more tied to the central nervous system than yeah. any of the other systems? That's what I assumed as well. Uh, okay. Well, when, when we say it that way, um, I would say I'm not <clears throat> educated enough to tell you if it's more or less necessarily innervated with the central nervous system. However, mm -hmm. it has been recently studied or published rather 
um, that uh, fascial tissue has about six to 10 times more neural endings in proprioceptive bodies when compared to muscle and other connective tissues. So that's pretty powerful in and of itself. Yeah. And you know, we're, we're starting now in the, in the fundamental section here, but you know, to jump quickly to the neural side, which gets extremely complex, yeah. um, you know, that's another part of it that for me, I think is, is, you know, really powerful with this approach is that we're, we're starting to just stimulate the body in ways that it hasn't been stimulated before. So let me give you an example on that. The way I describe my athletes or the athletes that we work with, they're the best worst athletes on the planet, right? Think about their, their upbringing, you know, in the, in the army and the Navy or whatever, right? Any branch you're exposed to extreme demands and you're exposed to extreme redundancy. You do five or six different things and you do them over and over and over and over again. So you become extremely proficient with them, with those, which is what we need from them. The way that I look at it is I'm probably going to get 10 to 50% more return on investment. If I just show them things that they've never done, if I just get them to move in the frontal plane, if I just introduce transverse mechanics, and if I just get them doing something that isn't a pull up, a bench press or a three mile run. Right. And so that ties right into you know, kind of touching back to a uh, part of Will's question here as well. How do we train the fascial system? Move, right? Yeah. It just starts with movement. And then I would add to that moving in multiple planes under multiple conditions with multiple directions, impulses, different load applications, different speeds. And you just start to challenge them from a standpoint or a perspective of how can I increase their ability to tolerate variability? And for me, that's kind of one of my empirical goals with my athletes. I need them. I don't need them to necessarily be stronger. Everybody needs to be faster. But for me personally, it's just not a, a primary focus right now. And everybody needs to be more durable or resilient, right? But I need to give these, these men and women the opportunity to develop an array of skills or an array of movement capabilities because they are so refined in what they do. I think that's yeah, going to really the, help them. I'm oh, sorry, Rob, go for it. Go for yeah, it. no, I, I love the how you said um, you want them to have the ability to tolerate variability. Um, I obviously work with a different population. I work with college athletes, but I really think of it as the same, same thing. I try to put them in as many different situations, movements, loading parameters as possible. So that they become more robust and resilient uh, to different types of stressors. Um, but I really wanted to ask you kind of this question, which might not be a very intelligent question to be honest, but is there a certain part of the body where fascia might be a little bit more important? Because when I think of fascia, I instinct instinctively think about the bottom of the feet. Um, for pretty obvious reasons. Yep. Is there other parts of the body where fascia is super important or that you really want to concentrate on the fascia with? Oh, that's a great question, man. Um, a, if I were to just be, you know, kind of cornered to say, is there a particular one or two spots? First thing that came to my mind was the planner. 
Um, that's a conversation for a separate time. But, you know, uh, I put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the foot ankle complex as well. So I would definitely say there. And then I would also just say 1D being kind of that thoracolumbar fascial region. Um, and again, just because it's a major player in a lot of different ways. Now, the caveat here is if somebody has a specific injury or if somebody has a specific point of weakness, so we'll just globalize it and say somebody's weak in the frontal plane. I would then say just as we would muscularly that localized deficiencies is an area to emphasize. Is, is, is that fair? Yeah. And then if you get someone there, you would say there's a deficiency there. Is your answer just get them moving in the frontal plane more? So let's say, yeah, let's stick with the frontal plane theme, right? It, it would start with just basic development of frontal plane movement, right? We don't skip preliminary steps just because we've termed this to be a different endeavor. But I would say that frontal plane weakness or deficiency is going to almost inherently suggest rotational deficiency. So then we decide, is that rotational production deficiency or is that rotational force management deficiency or anti-rotation, right? Maybe, not trying to get into a rabbit hole here, but maybe it's, you know, lateral bending, right? So it's, you know, it, you're taking these concepts or principles of, of fascial-based training, but you're still applying a lot of the same crap or stuff that we all do, you know, anyhow. So, you know, I think some of it is just kind of intuition. Yeah. And do you find that there's a deficiency with a lot of the, like the tactical athletes that you work with somewhere? Yeah. They're, they're a common theme, I guess. So they're a common yeah, theme. Oh, oh, absolutely. And, you know, it speaks right to what I was just saying a second ago about just the, the excessive redundancy to what they do. But um, there's a very strong correlation to this. Almost all of them have non-functional asymmetrical deficiency. So they have a super strong side and a super weak side. And that kind of goes across the gamut, not just that speaking to fascia, but, you know, for stability and mobility. Um, almost all of them are rotational or frontal plane deficient. And then almost all of them have uh, a lot of posterior, uh, we'll say incomplete posterior chain movement, um, where they, have, they may be strong in extension, but they can't get to terminal extension. That sounds like a lot of just general population people as well. Absolutely. Just from what I've seen, like, I know I, I used to be in the athletic or uh, collegiate strength and conditioning with a coworker with Will, but now I'm private sector for the last almost two years. And that's really what you see a lot of is very sagittal based playing people that piss poor rotation movements. Yeah. And like, so go play our, golf sometime guys. <laughs> no doubt. You know, and so that's the thing too, right? Like it, I, I've just spoken so far about how, you know, I'm in this unique situation or whatever, right? But at the end of the day, it's people are people and, and athletes are athletes. So what I'm seeing is, is with these certain deficiencies is probably common in a lot of other areas. Now, the magnitude of some of the injuries may be the, the kind of somewhat unique aspect of it, but movement is movement. And, and broadly speaking, we should have a pretty similar expectation across the board, irrespective of what their particular endeavor is um, in terms of what we want to see. So from a programming perspective, and this is, I, I understand it's very hard to measure the output of the fascia system in general and measure any key qualities of it right now, but 
I guess from a, if you see one of your athletes, what, three, four times a week, how often are you prioritizing some of the rotation-based um, movement exercises or movements that you're programming, I guess? So let's, uh, let's break this up into two classifications here. We'll just say kind of globally fascia-based training, and then we'll say sling-based training, fascial sling training. Okay. I like it. So, yeah, so, so the, the fascia <laughs> slings, um, we, we'll keep it simple to anterior and posterior and lateral chain. So the anterior fascial sling is going to include pec, serratus, and then a little bit of oblique, and then your contralateral or opposite adductor, and then kind of uh, a little bit of the flexor group. Okay, so shoulder to hip, right to left. The posterior sling is gonna include the lat, a little bit of the mid-rhomboid lower trap group, and then the opposite or contralateral glute and QL oblique. The lateral sling or the lateral subsystem, we can just kind of say it's mostly the major muscles of the lateral part of the body. So lat, oblique, QL again, and then some uh, lateral glute muscles. So when we're looking at sling-based training, it starts with contralateral base movement or right and left, right hand, left foot. This also plays right into locomotion or sprint action. If your left hip is flexed forward, your right arm is flexed through as well. So sling-based training is just emphasizing a couple of major things unilateral base training, contralateral base training, core stability, and basic motor control. For most of my athletes, putting them in a split position is foreign, on, foreign enough in and of itself. It's just very awkward for them to be outside of a bilateral stance. And I've gotten to the point now where I virtually do zero bilateral work. If we, we fluctuate mostly between single leg, split stance, or kickstand. So kickstand. I've, I've shifted from back squat a lot with some of my athletes too, unless they like truly want to do it. Um, otherwise, it's the, my primary bi bilaterals, the trap bar, deadlift, and then a lot of split squats. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm the same way. So coming back around to kind of my my initial point here, with the fascial base training, we're thinking about all the different parameters that it touches. So we're thinking about your, not only just your strength measures, but also your flexibility, mobility, your tissue extensibility or pliability. We're thinking about those neural properties. We're thinking about even a little bit of the vestibular side of things, but we're thinking about um, restorative base methods and like accessory work. With sling-based training, we're thinking about more of like heavier loading, kind of force application and then, you know, some of these bigger movements, um, you know, just done slightly differently. So instead of having just a dumbbell goblet squat, we're just going to do it as a single arm, right arm hold, left leg forward, and then float the back leg, you know, on a band or something low elevation. So again, it's the same concepts just done in a slightly different application. And with the sling stuff as well, this is where I start to try to get into some of the like oscillatory and perturbative type of movements, which I know are, you know, very catchy on Instagram or whatever, but I swear to God, that's the last thing that's on my mind with these posts with the perturbation and the oscillatory stuff. This is, this is emphasizing specifically those neural and proprioceptive properties that we were talking about earlier. So with all mechanoreception, we have, the ones everybody's familiar with, GTOs and muscle spindle fibers. 
GTOs cause muscle relaxation, muscle spindle fibers cause muscular contraction. Both are, are safeguard mechanisms. We also have receptors, mechanoreceptors in the joints that detect basically kinesthetic you know, position or where your body is in space. And then we have mechanoreceptors in the fascial tissue. And those are, include uh, Pacini and Ruffini fibers. And these are designed to detect changes in frequency, pressure, and um, uh, fluid changes, right? So your fascial tissue has all these different kind of receptors that are all functioning at all times. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, there's a way that we can kind of kill two birds with one stone here. If we're doing, you know, a chop or, um, you know, a cable row even or a press, I can just slightly change the variables by adding, you know, band perturbation or kind of, you know, the suspended kettlebell mechanism, uh, adding manual perturbations to things. And I'm, I'm not compromising my strength qualities, but now I'm also specifically emphasizing some of these more, you know, sophisticated, we'll say, mechanoreceptors. So again, it's in my mind, this is just an efficiency strategy. This isn't a creative strategy by any stretch of the means. Are you able to um, measure some of the, um, I guess, some of the progress that you're able to make within the lateral sling, uh, the, the fascial system that it works within, uh, like pre and post after an intervention with the population you're working with after doing all these, uh, the oscillatory stuff, all, the, all that, you know what I mean? Are you able to measure, measure the progress? Yeah. So objectively, no. And that's where it, you know, this, this style of training starts to lose people. And I fully respect that and understand it. Um, I know people have different kind of, uh, you know, standards of, of acceptance in terms of like what's been scientifically proven. So uh, take all of this with a grain of salt for, for all intents and purposes. But the first thing for me is pain measure. So when my athletes come to me, it's, it's literally within the first five questions that I'm asking them, what's your daily pain? If we start the program and you're at a six or a seven daily and you finish and you're at a three or a four, granted, our program is absolutely multimodal. There's a lot different, you know, there's a lot of different pieces that come together. So this can, this is in no way saying this is exclusively due to this. However, it's pretty prevalent throughout most of my training. So I just attribute it to at least being a part of pain management and, and restoration. The, I'm making it worse is what is leading down the right rabbit hole, basically. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of tack on to that, I do manually test anterior, posterior, lateral swing. So that is a pre-post measure. Now, again, it is a subjective analysis. Um, how do you how do you manually test that? You so have, lay them down yeah. and. Yeah. So I have a couple of, uh, I, I have these posted on my, on my YouTube. I'd be happy to send you guys the link so you can put it in the notes, but uh, describing it basically for the anterior sling, you're going to put somebody in a dead bug and you're going to push down on left knee and right arm at the same time. And they're going to contract. If you're testing the posterior sling, you're basically going to put them in a bird dog, have them lift left hand, right foot, and you're going to push down and they're going to resist against that. So there is some, you know, some objectivity to that and, you know, staying true to it is, is being, you know, a good coach, but um, I definitely see significant differences in pre-post measures on that. Um, 
And then uh, I would say, you know, on the more forced production side, just visually observing how our athletes are performing things like, you know, skip series, hop series, bounds. It's not extremely common, but for the ones that do, how they sprint, you know, is there is their movement a more fluent and more efficient with, you know, with production? B, are they able to sequence combination movements together? C, are they more elastic in nature? Do they create more propulsion with their gait or their run cycle? Are they able to, you know, overcome inertia or overcome rotational forces with more proficiency? Those are the things that I'm kind of, you know, visually looking for. Every time I, every time I look at the fascist system where I study it, I feel like it's, it's when I, I said earlier is more and more involved in the neuromuscular system than pretty much any other system to an extent. Um, and then when I was training some of my athletes, specifically at UND, uh, specifically the soccer team, I was looking a lot at how they would respond to different visual stimuli while working in some of those uh, contralateral rotation-based movements. Have you done anything uh, regarding vision and or just awareness of stimulus regarding like side to side or in different planes of view, uh, perspective or anything like that? I, we do do a good bit of that. Um, <laughs> vestibular work is definitely a conversation in and of itself, but yeah, uh, I, 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 the, I had to ask. Well, no, I mean, it's, most of what I've, I've done with vestibular work has been like a lot of my work has been strongly influenced by Cal Dietz and Cal has some incredible resources and, and uh, content up on this. So, you know, really, if you want to hear from a true expert on that, I would point you right to him. But as far as we're concerned, um, it's another form of just movement and performance integration, you know? And so we found that by having, you know, having our athletes do some of these, you know, vestibular eye tracking type of drills and it's simple we spend maybe 10 to 15 collective minutes a week on it um that they tend to feel better you know guys who struggle with migraines tend to not have as bad of migraines um we've seen you know we've had you know athletes report uh you know improvements in awareness and uh sleep not necessarily getting more sleep but just saying you know things like i'm waking up more regenerated or i feel more refreshed waking up I have no idea if there's any direct correlation to that or not, but that's the one component of our training that clearly is outside of what everything else is. You know what I'm saying? So it's like yeah. with athletes that I've done this with, it's usually because there's a specific impetus for it. Um, but I think also at the same time, you know, those are the ones that have the most room to improve. So the, the, those are the ones who are most likely to see results from something like this. I think Cal has influenced more people than he ever intended to. He's, I think he's a mentor, a mentor to more people that have never met him than anyone else. Cause I got my RPR level two from him. So I, I, one, I, guess. I can't speak highly enough of Cal, just such a great, great dude. And we all know how, you know, unbelievably smart he is, but you know, I think the, the, number, one thing, yeah, the number one thing that I've taken from Cal though, don't be afraid to have a different perspective just make sure you know what you're doing and, and do it with repetition. You know, you got to yeah. see what it's about. So I like that. Um, 
I that's that's kind of everything that I had. I know we're kind of running low on time. We have a couple more minutes left. Will, you got anything else you want to dive into for a couple minutes? Yeah, this might be a really quick answer though. Um, myofascial release proponent? Yes, no. Sure. So with with myofascial release, what people commonly perceive as trigger points or tightness is actually more more so a lack of fluid right? We don't have enough fluid in the area. So with, with fascia, with fascia, we have to understand there are multiple layers to it. There's superficial fascia and then there's deep, we have intermediate layers and these tissues glide back and forth. So what happens is, is when we have, you know, repeat chronic stress, or we have, you know, poor resting posture, poor, you know, whatever, those kinds of things. What happens is, is that fascial tissue starts to get matted down. And it's because the signals being sent to the brain are, hey, this is the position that we need to be in. So we need to kind of, you know, make it stable or, or, or provide stability here. So what happens is, is when this tissue begins to get matted, there's a reduction in hyaluronic acid, which is the primary fluid that's responsible for tissue glide. Because again, that signal is saying, hey, we don't need HA or we don't need hyaluronic acid in this region. So those tissues start to kind of become stuck together and then they just crimp and fold on each other. And then that's what creates that feeling or sensation of tightness or a trigger point, right? But to answer your question directly, yeah, myofascial release is absolutely a productive thing. Um, I think that the, the things that we get caught up on are, are just kind of silly, like, you know, debating back and forth about which is better and do, is it cupping or is it dry needling? Well, they do two different things and they're, they're intended for different populations. I've had some people who, who live and die by dry needling and then others that felt absolutely nothing and hated the process. Some people love cupping. Other people think it's a waste of time. It, it's not a matter of which one that that's really should be in question. It's a, it's a matter of finding which ones are valuable for you and within your resource and within your, you know, obviously your budget and everything. But I would encourage everybody, deep tissue massage, cupping, dry needling, um, and then even just, you know, self-myofascial release techniques are all valuable. You just need to figure out how much of each you really need. Had a conversation what you were just with an explaining. athlete. Oh. oh, no, I was just saying yeah. I had a conversation with an athlete that I, they asked what, um, like, do you recommend foam rolling? I was like, if you feel better after doing it, hell sure. yeah, I recommend it. Yeah. We're not going to spend 15 minutes a week on it, but if you get on a foam roller, it, you know, after training or at night and, and it makes you feel better, sure. It does not change any kind of structures. There's nowhere near enough force for it to change any structures. It does not improve or lengthen uh you know fascia or anything like that but it very well could have a neurological effect that may be transient but hey again if, if you get down on the ground and roll around on something for three minutes and you personally feel better and more ready to train shit get on get on the ground man what are we arguing about um same thing with cupping it's like you know we're people are so mis misconstrued on some of these things cupping is one of the best ways that anybody knows of to get fluid moving in the areas. So when you're cupping, you want to move, right? Don't be static. Don't just lay there. You want to move around and, and get those things to start, you know, getting fluid in and out of the area. That's really the premise of it. With what you're explaining, um, as far as the fascia and signaling, not getting enough fluid into a certain area, would that be the reason why like people get plantar fasciitis? That'd be like the primary cause. So tearing I, the fascia in their feet. Um, so I would say that that 
you know, uh, that example specifically speaks more to like the trap in the neck, you know, from like forward head posture. I would say that the damage and the, uh, you know, injury vulnerability to the planner is much more mechanical, much more action-based, much more stress-strain based. It's, okay. um, you know, now I guess to kind of throw a quick caveat there though, uh, you know, one thing I point out with a lot of, a lot of my athletes is circulation to the feet, right? A lot of them have had poor circulation to the feet. Well, if we have poor circulation to the feet in terms of blood flow, then the same is probably true for lymphatic flow. And then for this hyaluronic acid flow. So then, you know, in that case, I would say, yeah, it's, it's, it's vital to make sure that the circulation of the foot, um, is in good shape for that specific reason of, of, you know, kind of, uh, preserving the plantar fascia. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I know I don't have the book in front of me. I know it's called fashion training. It's kind of what got me on the map with all this stuff, but I'm pretty sure Bill Parisi wrote yes. the book. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I actually, I, sent my book down to Nick DeMarco at Elon. I hope he uh, has taken a little bit from it, but I don't have it in front of me anymore, but thank you for confirming that. Uh, what other resources can you give for people that want to learn a little bit more about fascia, sling training? I know Anatomy Trains is out there. It's a dense, dense book, but I know it's very valuable too. So so you, you nailed both of them. Um, Anatomy Trains was my first introduction. And, and just as you said, it, it is incredibly dense. And it took me a little while to kind of get through that. And then I went, had to go back through again to really understand. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's like super training. It's, Only, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, it's a good read, but it's a textbook style read. Mm -hmm. um, fascial training is probably the, the one number one or number two most profound books for me um, in a professional sense. Bill Parisi, I thought, uh, if, if I can be perfectly honest, was just kind of this agility guy who was from New Jersey and did some speed stuff. And, um, you know, I am so glad that I clicked on whatever I did when I saw him post something about fascia training, because my God, it not only is the information provided in that book ridiculously powerful, it's an incredibly fun read. Like it's a good book. Mm -hmm the reading it's kind of like a narrative style and he let you know there's different people that are kind of talking throughout so it's a it's a phenomenal book and, and i cannot recommend that highly enough um very cool and then one last one you know if there's anybody who's more on like the medical side or, or you know really kind of into more of the uh, uh detailed side of this uh biotensegrity um is a, is another good book that is very uh dense but a solid read nonetheless very cool. And we always ask our, uh, we always ask our guests one last question before we get rolling here. Will hit them with it. Yeah. Appreciate your time coming on here, man. Uh, is there anyone you'd recommend us that we reach out to next? Um, well, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Tim Kelly. Um, okay. He's we're we do a lot of the same stuff, but man, that guy's got a unique perspective. Um, my my wife Nicole, just so I don't get yelled at tonight, uh, she's an Olympic <laughs> specialist and she does an, an incredible job with kids and uh, with marketing and graphics as well. And then last, I would say uh, Jeremy Aspa is another one, um, athletic mm -hmm. trainer, works with a similar, uh, you know, he's actually more on the pilot side, uh, but great with spine 
mechanics. He also worked as the ATC in, at Hampton University and uh, a couple other places prior to that. But yeah, those would be my recommendations. Awesome. Very cool. Again, Dan, thank you for your 40 minutes here. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. I'm excited to go back and kind of break it down a little bit and get it up online then. Absolutely, man. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you.